welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you. I hopefully will be dynamic this morning. That's the setup I better deliver this morning. It's a dynamic day. It's Easter day. Christ is risen. Well done. <laughs> yeah, you were excited for this together. So it's great to be able to celebrate with hundreds of millions of people all over the world the central event of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. You know, Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from his home, yet you can find people like us, Christ followers, in every single part of the globe, in every region, in every city, in every place. How on earth did 12 Fishermen, tax collectors and farmers become this movement where now one in four of the world's population identify as followers of Jesus. Well, the answer is the resurrection, and that is the story we celebrate today. Today we're going to take a quick look at some of the evidence for the resurrection and then the impact of the resurrection. And then I'm going to give us a Romani moment, a moment where we can do what Romani did and actually just think again about the depth of God's love for us and commit our lives to following Jesus either for the first time or recommitting our lives to following Jesus. Just as we start things off this morning, there are some core facts because you could be coming to this inquiring about faith or you've been around faith for a long time. There are some core facts around the Easter story and these are not disputed. They're on the screen here. Jesus was crucified and buried, no dispute. Three days after his death, his body went missing. There were reported appearances of Jesus over the course of 40 days to both believers and unbelievers. Those individuals were transformed by those appearances. And they began to proclaim Christ's resurrection even to the point of being martyred for their proclamation. Now those set of core facts are not Christian facts, they're just facts. They're not disputed by historians who really focus in on this time span of history. The question comes about Give us the explanation. How did this all take place? That's where the discussion happens. Peter May, who's an author in his book called The Search for God, put it well. Just hear this. This describes it. The resurrection of Christ is intrinsically improbable because dead people don't rise. Surely that's the universal experience of humanity. So from the very outset, the Christian claims appear dead in the water. But the problem is, all other attempts to explain away those facts we just looked at are also found dead in the water. Now, the first followers of Jesus, they preached the resurrection as this hard, bare, paradigm-shifting, horribly inconvenient, but impossible to dismiss fact. That's how they preached it. We tend to live in the realm of likes and dislikes, Facebook, Instagram, you like stuff, you dislike it, but actually the, the story of the resurrection is in a different category. It's in the realm of true or false. It's not in like, dislike. The author Tim Keller, who's a Christian author, captures the heart of the question really well. He said, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything that he said, and if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like or dislike his teaching, but it's whether or not he rose from the dead. So the evidence for this resurrection story groups under a number of headings, sort of six or so different headings. There are others, but I'm not going to cover them all today, just to give you a sigh of relief. Um, but, but I'm going to cover a couple, and then we're going to look at the impact for the resurrection, because that's when it really affects our lives. First one is the eyewitness accounts. Do you know, if you've got a Bible on your phone or got a physical Bible, anybody got a Bible with them today? 
Great stuff. Maybe you've got your phones, you can download a Bible easily there. You know, when you read the Bible, you're thinking, what am I reading here? Is it, is it history or is it myth or is it just kind of people with a, a, a kind of a passion to tell a good story? The gospel accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they were written within a generation of the events themselves. And that is not disputed by serious historians who know this period of history well. So those early writings, that supports the idea of reliability, of authenticity, of accuracy. And I love that video earlier about that first encounter with the women going to the tomb. We, we find in those eyewitness early accounts an authenticity. We find uh, just an honesty that's not the stuff of legends written decades later. You know, we see people, it, it's a story about those initial followers' unbelief. We see them leaving Jerusalem, going the wrong way. We see people going back to their careers. We see people having eyewitness accounts and saying, I don't believe you. That's what we see. We see a testimony of unbelief, almost. It's a really honest way to tell the story, because it's true. This is not spin, friends. This is the real story captured in the Gospels. And from our readings, we see, and we saw that video earlier, that the initial witnesses to the empty tomb were the women. Now, in the culture of the first century, the women and, and the testimony of women was devalued and they weren't allowed to testify in a Jewish court. So if you were going to ramp up the story and give it some more dramatic effect, you'd probably airbrush the ladies out of the first witness role and put in some guys there, just to be honest. But they didn't do that. There's an authenticity and an honesty to these accounts. We're told that Jesus appeared to over 515 people over a period of 40 days. One of the doctors, Dr. Luke, was a, a meticulous researcher and he did his research into the story of Jesus and he actually captures it this way. Jesus presented himself to his followers and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. If you read the whole lot, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you get names and details that are thrown in to the account. So we hear uh, of people like Cleopas. Cleopas is mentioned, not others. We see um, women's names like Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. When you get a little insert like that in historical literature that's eyewitness accounts, what the authors are doing is they're saying, Listen, that's like putting in a footnote that we would read in a book. Basically, the implication, if you want to go and check it out, talk to these people. Implication is they're alive and you can chat to them. That's why those names and those details are put in there. So the eyewitness accounts help us as we think about the credibility of the story, the empty tomb. The resurrection, if it was a deception, just preached up by the apostles, it wouldn't have lasted a week, let alone a decade. The authorities could have just settled it completely by producing a body. They never did. Another theory is the disciples stole the body of Jesus. How do you get a corpse to speak to 550 people? You know, it's like maybe get the two strong disciples, prop him up and just kind of animate the mouth. It doesn't work very well. You don't get a corpse, move him around and try and convince people he's really alive, honestly. I just love him to be alive, but he's not. It, I mean, it's just, it's almost laughable. Uh, you know, maybe people think, well, actually, the reason the disciples thought Jesus was alive is they went to the wrong tomb. They put the wrong postcode in the sat-nav, went to the wrong tomb, and they thought, oh, there's an empty tomb, he must be alive. Well, if they took that as the basis for preaching, the authorities would have said, hang on a minute, game over, we've got his body, you're just deluded. All those objections that you might have in conversation with somebody, there are compelling answers that really let the story of Easter confront us with some truth that needs to be thought about. One of the ones that I find fascinating is this, uh, this, this other piece of evidence where the, the Jews, that early community of followers, worshipping Jesus as God. Now, if you were brought up in a Jewish family, you wouldn't even write the name God. You wouldn't say the name God. There was such reverence for God. 
That's the culture that the Jewish community were found in. They would never even consider the thought of worshipping a human being as God. That would be blasphemy. It was blasphemy to consider that. Then literally overnight, hundreds and then thousands of Jews began worshipping Jesus as God. Something shattered their paradigm. That monumental change requires explanation. Whether you have faith or not, you've got to say what's the explanation for these conservative Orthodox Jews who would never consider worshipping anybody but God in heaven. They worship Jesus as God. What's taken place? Well, the resurrection makes sense of the evidence. Hey, if you're interested and you're just exploring faith, or you want to dig a bit deeper so you can answer a friend, just some helpful books, maybe Lee Strobel's books, The Case for Christ or The Case for the Real Jesus. There's helpful stuff that can uh, help you in your journey. If, you, if you've got questions, put your mental faculties in first gear and just drive towards the evidence. Think it through. Just do some research because I think that will help you in your journey of faith. Faith is putting your, your brain fully in gear and actually looking at the evidence for yourself. Before we move on to the impact of the resurrection, I want to tell a brief story. It's a story from the States back in 1968 and Martin Luther King, the um, civil rights leader, was assassinated and he was a phenomenal figure just leading the civil rights movement. But there was a real tipping point when he was assassinated. Many people feared that his death would just create unrest and that could undo the good work of the civil rights movement. And Dr. King's funeral was a pivotal event. And one of the men who spoke there was a chap by the name of James Bevel. We see a picture on screen. James Bevel is the guy that's alongside Dr. King. James Bevel was one of his closest associates and actually he was given the role to speak at the funeral. And he said these words. You have heard that our leader is dead. That rumor is false. Our leader is not dead. Because our leader was not Martin Luther King. He paused. Our leader is the one who led Moses out of Egypt. Our leader is the one who went down with Daniel into the lion's den. Our leader is the one who walked out of the grave on that Easter Sunday morning. Our leader neither slumbers nor sleeps. Our leader cannot be put in jail. Our leader is still on the job. Our leader is not dead. <laughs> I love that. That's the Easter message, friends. Our leader is not dead. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Someone put it this way. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then it's game over. But if he has been, it's game on. So what's the impact of the resurrection? Just five things I want to look at really briefly as we think about what this Easter story means for us in this room today. Whether you're convinced or you're exploring or you're a follower of Jesus. Pope Benedict said it this way, Jesus' victory over death transforms our lives. It frees them from fear and it gives them a firm hope. It infuses them with something that provides existence with full meaning, the very love of God, freedom from fear. Do you know, we're all going to face death. We're going to experience that. But we can experience life after death by trusting in Jesus. We can also experience fullness of life here as we get to know God. I love what C.S. Lewis put when reflecting on death. He'd nursed his wife through cancer. She died. He was traumatized by that. And he reflected, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, he has fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he's done so. So the resurrection of Jesus changes the face of death for everybody who trusts him. Death is no longer a prison, but a passage into God's presence. Jesus delivers from fear, but he also delivers from all other fears. Fear of death is the fear beneath all other fears because it's the ultimate loss. But whatever fear we face, God can deliver us and God can strengthen us through it. 
Second thing we see is strength in trials. The resurrection of Jesus is like a foundation for a worldview that gives a new perspective in all of life. Friends, just got a wake-up call. We're going to experience trials in this life. Bad stuff happens, doesn't it? And it's bleak when it happens. What helps us navigate those moments? Josh McDowell put it this way, no matter how devastating our struggles, our disappointments, and our troubles, they are only temporary. No matter how, no matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain that you might face, no matter how death might stalk you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. I find that profoundly helpful. When I'm in a tough time or I see a friend going through a trial, I'd love it to just go and change, but sometimes it doesn't. But when I think about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, that's a point in history that cannot be changed, and it speaks to a hope for the future. God is not indifferent, and God is not distant, and God gives us strength in trials. Hope for the future, the next thing. Hope is what you get when you realize a different view of the world is possible. The message of Easter is that God's new world has begun and it's been unveiled in Jesus and you're now invited to belong to this new world. This is a hard one to get, but the resurrection of Jesus is like a prototype for a new kind of body and a new kind of life. This is not reviving of an old body. I think when I was growing up in church, I thought that the resurrection was just like a kind of like a kind of waking up from a sleep. It was it's not that. This is not some corpse that has had some compression, chest compressions, and then suddenly managed to get a few breaths and say hi to his friends. This is not, you know, the defibrillators are on, shock to the heart, and then he managed to chat for a bit longer. That would be resuscitation. This is not resuscitation, this is resurrection. It's a different thing altogether. Let me just, um, how many of you drive cars? You got cars? Anybody got a car? Yeah, okay. So imagine you drive your car, and I will assume for this conversation it's a petrol car or a diesel car. You drive it in to get a service, and uh, whilst it's being serviced, you think, I love my car, I just want it to stay the same. You like it, you know the style of it. But then it goes in, and it has a massive overhaul. I mean, it basically gets a lot of work done under the engine, and basically it comes out a fully electric vehicle. It's got solar panels on the roof, but it's still your car somehow. It looks like your car, but it's just been overhauled completely. It will be recognizable, but also completely different. Well, that's a bit like Jesus' resurrection body. It was recognizable, but completely different. Because this body could eat food and be seen by his friends and they could have a chat. But then also this body would appear in locked rooms out of nowhere. Just recognisable but different. It was a new order. Jesus' resurrection is the first act in God's new creation. This is a sign pointing of what's to come when we trust in Jesus. So Jesus is God's prototype on planet Earth. And God is going to do to the whole of creation what he did in Jesus. In Jesus, he pulled out death and destruction and decay. Boom, gone. And he was resurrected. In the fall, creation was infected by death and decay. But the cure began in Jesus' death and resurrection. So here's the thing. God starts that act of new creation in us as we say yes to Jesus. It's a spiritual new creation first. We become friends of God, adopted into his family. This new creation work then finishes and is fully wrapped up when Jesus returns. Transform bodies and transform new creation. The next thing, power to change. The minute you decide to receive Jesus as Saviour and Lord and you fully surrender, the power of God's Spirit comes in to the very heart of your life. And the power of the resurrection is the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. I loved Romani's story earlier. Just of God filling the void and moving in and 
activating change in the very deepest places of his heart. The Bible puts it this way, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will give life to you by the same spirit living in you. Get that. That resurrection story is multiplied in our hearts as we say yes to Jesus. So that power to change that we heard earlier is available to anybody as we trust Jesus, as we learn to trust him every day in life. How people have described that to me when I've chatted to friends who've come to faith, they say, do you know what? I just know that I've come alive to God. He's filled the hole. I just feel lighter on the inside. Things are different. I know God's real and I know God's for me. People experience that transformation and forgiveness. Freedom from fear and peace and new perspective. Our past doesn't have to dictate our future. Fifth thing, friendship with God. The main impact of the resurrection for all of us here is that everything that's ever blocked us from friendship with God has been fully, fully dealt with by Jesus. The final words on the cross, we saw it in the video earlier, were, it is finished. Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Last words have power. I don't know if you've ever sat by the bedside of a family member, a grandparent, a mum or dad, or a brother or sister, and you've been present with them in those fading moments, and you just are very attentive to last words in case something just fun is going to be said, or just even just you want to hear just a person's voice because they're precious to you. Hey, listen, Jesus knew what his last words were going to be. And those last words, it is finished. It's a bit strange because it's actually an accounting term. Any accountants in the room? <laughs> the last thing you'd say is something from accounts. Wow. Well, Jesus actually, that word it is finished means paid in full. What a strange thing. To suddenly talk the language of accounting and maths. At the very last moment, it is finished, paid in full. Boom. When Jesus spoke those words, he's declaring that the debt owed to his father was wiped away completely and forever. Not that Jesus wiped away any debt that he owed to his father, but rather Jesus eliminated the debt owed by mankind, the debt of sin. Hundreds of years before this moment, this paid in full moment from Jesus, there was a prophet Isaiah and he saw through history 700 years ahead to what Jesus would do. And he put it this way. Just for a minute, imagine that this Bible is the life of Jesus, pure, sinless, never made any mistakes, always lived God's best, chose the right path in every moment, never intimidated or controlled by people, just did the stuff and the will of God all the time. He had perfect friendship with his father. Nothing blocked him and his father in heaven. Imagine if God's up in heaven, he's there. Nothing kind of came between it. And this is what Isaiah says. Hey, we, we're just like, um, we're just like, little sheep that go bleating around. We just do our own thing. We just do dumb stuff all the time. We make mistakes. We say silly things. We're just selfish. And it just happens. We're just like sheep that have gone astray. And it says that the Lord laid, this, imagine this is all our kind of a record of our wrongdoing. The Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So when, what happened at the cross is that all of our dumb choices and all of our pain and our mistakes and all the moments that we've wandered off the path, that was laid on Jesus. And for the first time in history, all of a sudden, Jesus didn't have this um, uninterrupted connection with his father. He actually said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off for a point in history, but not because of what he'd done, but because of what we'd done. It was laid on him at the cross. Hey, at the cross, friends, we see this great exchange. 
It's where Jesus descended to the depths so that we might ascend to the heights. It's where Jesus, out of love, became everything that you and me are. He became guilty and weak. He became cut off from God and subject to death in order that we might, if we choose, share in his innocence, in his power, his friendship with God and his life. Jesus' hands were pierced with nails so that your name could be written on the palm of his hand. Jesus was stripped and beaten so that you might be clothed in the righteousness of God. Jesus was given a crown of thorns so that you might get a crown of righteousness. He was plunged into darkness so that you might walk in the very light of God. He was cut off so that you might be brought home. He was rejected so you could be accepted by God. He faced death so you could come alive to God. And that, friends, is the story of Easter. Let's pray and then Jessica will lead us in a moment to respond. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.